Good afternoon and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown. Today is April the 6th, 2022, and if you're feeling like things are a little bit slippery, that is because it is indeed National Teflon Day. I am your non-stick host for the rundown this week, Tom Hollingsworth, and joining me is my very well-coded co-host, Mr. Chris Grundeman. Chris, well, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks. Always fun to be here. Yeah, we. Uh, you'll notice that I was out last week and uh, Stephen took care of the rundown. Actually, I think he took care of the rundown the last couple of weeks, but he's out this week, so I'm going to uh, jump on and take care of it, and Chris will be joining me. Uh, we've got some exciting news coming in the chip maker space. We've also got a big acquisition that we can't wait to talk about. Um, but I want to go ahead and jump in with uh, you know friend of the show, Intel, because guess what? They bought somebody else. Um, they are going to be picking up a new offering designed to help application developers size software for resources available. The Granulate Cloud Solutions team uh, was announced as the latest pickup for Intel. Now, the terms of the deal were not disclosed. However, it looks like uh, Granulate had taken about $45 million in funding since they were founded back in 2018. So do the math there. Uh, the heart of the Granulate solution is designed to reduce CPU utilization and application latency through optimizing the code when it is run on the cloud platform. Essentially, they're trying to make it use fewer resources so you don't get billed for as much in your cloud platform. Makes sense if you're running a cloud operation, right? But Intel sees that there's a lot of possibility for this to be used in the local enterprise uh, server farms as well. Uh, Chris, what do you think about this move? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think there's room for efficiency everywhere. Uh, this definitely plays to what I think is, you know, one of Intel's biggest strengths, which is this kind of ecosystem and and not just making hardware, but also providing software. A lot of the software they provide for free, some isn't. Um, but this definitely fits into that whole, uh, I think, approach to the marketplace of kind of, you know, being really vertically integrated across everything someone's going to need to do with the chips, not just selling the chips. Um, I think that, uh, you know, this is also another piece of this wider trend of using, you know, finding creative ways to use artificial intelligence in, in, in more and more places. Uh, cost saving seems like an obvious choice uh, for machine learning applications, but, uh, you know, good to see that portfolio expand as well. Um, and then just as, as a side note, right, I mean, you know, one, that $45 million was only a Series B. So that's pretty cool. This company, you know, obviously moving fast and, and getting on the radar of Intel. And it's another uh, Israeli startup, which, which I think we've seen a lot more of these kind of coming in, getting snapped up um, fairly quickly. Uh, you know, so, as, you know, maybe back of the mind question, you know, is there a power shift happening from Silicon Valley to Israel? It's been going on for a long time and probably not uh, a takeover, but, uh, but interesting to see these startups come out of there. Um, moving on a little bit, uh, MailChimp went bananas this week with a reported breach that could affect hundreds of customers. One of their customers announced a phishing campaign designed to harvest crypto wallet information that was leveraged against one of their mailing lists. MailChimp later announced that over 300 accounts were compromised by an outside party through social engineering that led to compromise of employees' credentials. Uh, Tom, is getting email addresses like this a big deal? It is if you're MailChimp because you basically lost all your customer data. Um, it's kind of funny that you know the MailChimp didn't know they'd been breached. Um, what happened was that this uh, this manufacturer, I think it was Tresnor was the name of the company. Uh, it's in the article that we're going to link to. Uh, basically, someone leveraged that mailing list to send out an update saying, hey, we've been compromised. You need to update to this latest version of the software that we just pushed out. 
except it wasn't designed to do that. It was designed to get the seed recovery keys and all this other stuff. So basically they could loot these wallets. Okay. Typical cybercrime stuff. The thing was, is that when Trezner started doing all of this research on what happened, they realized that a lot of the information was coming from MailChimp mailing lists. And so that's when MailChimp had to go digging and find out, whoops, somebody compromised our credentials. Now, when you take this in kind of hand in hand with what we've been seeing with the Lapsus group as of late, where they're encouraging insiders to kind of, you know, provide that information. Hey, you know, give us, uh, you know, give us a VPN access to your box for 45 minutes and we'll pay you. Um, I think that this is kind of, you know, the old school, you know, hey, this is Eddie Vedder in accounting. Can I get you to read me the number off the modem kind of thing from, you know, the seminal work hackers, but but a little bit more sophisticated now that we're what, you know, 27 years past that, uh, more than that, maybe at this point, we're almost 30 years past that. Um, here's the deal. Ultimately, though, um, this isn't going to stop like like. Social engineering is as old as the Greeks and the Trojans. Hey, look at this really big horse. There could totally not be anything inside of it, especially not a bunch of armed Greeks that are mad at you. Um, we're never going to get this to go away. You've got to start putting controls in your system that prevent you from allowing these things to happen. Like insiders should not have access to every system in the world. MailChimp's like level one support techs, if this is how they got in, should not have had access to the mailing list members. Like that's just, that's security policy 101. It's not even 101. That's like 001. Like nobody should have visibility into everything. So rather than saying, oh, it's so bad that these groups have hacked us and in this... That should be like the red flag, like not just a red flag. That should be like the ones that fly over car lots that are like, you know, like 48 feet by 36 feet. Like that should be the gigantic wake up call of we've got a real problem and we need to fix it. Zero trust, principle of least privilege, the basics. Go in and fix the problems. Don't don't blame it on, oh, hackers, because I promise you, ooh hackers next week will be, ooh insider threats. So make sure you're uh, you're doing your due diligence there, folks. Um, speaking about uh, another big cloud provider, though, Microsoft announced a tech preview of some ARM instances for Azure this week. Um, the offering, which they're calling Quicksilver, is built around the Ampere Ultra ARM core. Uh, well, one of them, uh, in fact, the cores can scale up to 80 cores and can run up to three gigahertz. Now, uh, Amazon Web Services has already been running on some of their uh their ARM cores and they're trying to offer them for more, you know, availability. And the way that a lot of people are seeing this move from Microsoft is they're trying to diversify some of their offerings away from Intel and try to compete with ARM. Although in the linked article uh, provided by Mr. Stephen Foskett, I thought it was kind of interesting that they're looking at the possibility that Google could be the last holdout that is x86 only when you consider that they've spent a lot of their time running ARM cores in their cell phones. I thought that was kind of amusing. But Chris, how do you see this shift from to ARM by Microsoft and Amazon? Is this kind of like wanting to make sure that they don't put too many eggs in one basket? Or is this kind of signaling a wider shift in the industry away from the venerable x86 architecture? Yeah, I mean, I think, at least personally, I don't think that this is a big shift away from x86. I, I think that this is a sensible approach to, um, or a sensible response, rather, to you know, global supply chain shortages, chip shortages that we've seen kind of across multiple industries, right? It just makes sense to have a diversity in chip manufacturers uh, at this stage, right? I think we've gone a long time in a lot of different areas, right? If you look at you know the networking space, Broadcom was kind of there, and, and we've seen some diversity happening 
um, in other chips. And I think this is just another example of that in the, in the compute space where we're going to move away from, you know, just Intel being kind of the only option and for a lot of folks for a long time to having some kind of radically different options, right? It's not just AMD, but also now ARM, um, you know, a totally different architecture, which is interesting. It'll be interesting to me to see how fast they can ramp this up again, kind of given the backdrop of, of chip shortages and supply chain issues. And also, you know, what those offerings, how those offerings will differentiate beyond just, hey, it's a different process underneath. Are there different capabilities that they're going to be able to um, bring forward um, as they move forward with, with ARM, right? And going up to potentially, right, this is just about the 80 core chips, but, you know, there are the kind of mystique 128 core chips out there. Uh, there's other things in development. So, um, again, I, I think to me, the most interesting thing is not just is there different hardware underneath, because that to me seems like a supply chain hedge, but what can you deliver on top of that? Are these services um, new and differentiated because of that, or is it just um, you know a a VM with a different uh, label on it? Um, changing gears a little bit, uh, it looks like Germany managed to shut down a large darknet marketplace this week. The Hydra market, which was one of the largest on record, was hosted in Germany and had their servers seized and impounded. Uh, U.S. authorities had been investigating Hydra since last August. The market was well known as a place to obtain illegal drugs, digital services, and forged documents. There were some 17 million registered accounts at the time the system was taken offline. Uh, other than a great name, um, Tom, is this a win for the good guys? Well, yes, it is, because they've taken out yet another wretched hive of scum and villainy. Uh, yeah. This is the thing we we've known about these places for a long time. I watched a great documentary recently about the Silk Road, um, you know, online marketplace and and how it was kind of you know, um, you know, the way that it was purported to do a lot of crazy things, like even worse than this. Like there were you could, if you knew where to look, you could carry out contract assassinations on the on the Silk Road. Thankfully, we've we've come down from there to you know other crimes like uh, digital identity forgery and, and illegal drugs. But, you know, that the thing ultimately is, and, and this kind of follows a pattern for people who are like, well, why don't, why don't, why doesn't law enforcement act on this faster? Um, you know, the FBI has been looking at this since August. Like, like it takes time. It, it, no investigation can be instantaneous. And so they had to know where the actors were. They had to know where they had jurisdiction. Um, the fact that the, the Hydra market was kind of tied to Russian sources um, I don't know if this was one of those things where they were hoping to maybe roll up into a, a bigger organization or something like that. And finally, it, time came to drop the hammer and they picked them up and, and took it offline. So the thing ultimately is with 17 million registered user accounts and you know some tens of thousands of people offering services on there, I'm sure they did not put all of their heads in one serpent's as it were, uh, and they're going to be popping up in other places. But, you know, to me, it would be like if you took Amazon offline, it's not going to kill digital shopping. It's just going to kill the ease of people being able to find stuff. Um, also, I'm waiting for someone to pop up a headline that says that the Hydra market was like the Amazon of darknet marketplaces or something, because that'll be hilarious. Um, but no, this this is a win for the good guys. Um, the question will be what replaces it? Because in these kinds of scenarios, if you know, going back to all the way to the Silk Road, the Silk Road was replaced by something that was replaced by something that something was probably replaced by Hydra. And there'll always be a black market. We can't stop that. The question is, how do we get rid of it when we find out when it's you know reached a certain point? 
All right, Chris, uh, we wanted to take a look at a big story that came out this week. Um, it was kind of interesting to us here at The Rundown because we kind of followed the the evolution of this company. Uh, fresh off of an appearance on stage during Aruba Atmosphere last week, Pensando is now off the market. And that is thanks to AMD. The other big chip maker in the space is picking up this DPU maker for $1.9 billion. So that's a great exit for Mr. John Chambers and his team of whiz kids. Uh, the move is designed to compete directly against NVIDIA's Bluefield DPU offerings, as well as the nascent Intel IPU solution, which is a DPU just with an I because Intel. In addition, um, this is going to allow them to broaden their horizons as a maker of more than just CPUs. And that comes directly from friend of the show and co-host Stephen Foskett, who commented on that uh, when it, the news was announced on Monday. Um, Chris, what do you think about AMD jumping into the DPU fray wholeheartedly? Yeah, I think there's there's definitely a couple uh, different aspects to this, right? I mean, one, to me, you know, Pensando, while the technology looks very cool, and I think the the way they're approaching DPU, or sorry, DPUs, um, especially their use of, of P4, um, the, the programming language at the uh, kind of ASIC level to, to program flows on chips, uh, is really awesome, right? I mean, it's really, really cool tech. Um, but 1.9 billion is a kind of a, you know, just eye-watering number uh, for such an early stage company. I mean, I'm not even sure what the customer levels are. I know when we saw them appear at Cloud Field Day 7 back in, I guess, a year ago now, or is that two years ago? Uh, April of 2020, I think. Um, we were still kind of scratching our heads as to the exact use cases that they would figure out. Um, and obviously, they've matured since then over those two years. Um, but uh, but again, 1.9 billion just sounds like a really huge number for um, you know, the, the newest take on, on SmartNix. That said, uh, you know, I think they're probably not just acquiring the technology and the customers, but also that team, um, that famous MPLS team uh, that worked with Chambers on several other spin-ins at Cisco um, that apparently the only reason it didn't work out long-term was just it caused too much jealousy inside of Cisco because these folks uh, were so successful so many times in a row and were able to cash in on that over and over again that other engineers at Cisco kind of uh, had their feathers ruffled and, and decided that, it, you know, it wasn't really a great idea. Uh, so they've now done this kind of spin out situation where they've now spun back into uh, to AMD instead. Um, very interesting stuff, right? And I do think that the real question here is, you know, how this will get used and is the landscape of server architecture going to change um, to take advantage of these, uh, you know, DPUs, right? And, and I don't want to disparage them by calling them smart NICs, but this is something that's been around for a long time and hasn't really taken off in a big way. And so my question is, you know, is this the time uh, for DPUs to shine, right? Is this really going to be, uh, are we going to, you know, leverage this newer technology, whether it's P4 and, and programming um, at that level or, or something different that really kind of starts to make these uh, more widespread in use? So you're absolutely right. Um, for everybody who doesn't know, in, uh, this uh, Pensando was founded by the the brain trust of most of Cisco's successful product lines over the last several years. Uh, Mario Mazzola, Prim Jane, uh, Luca Caffiero, and Sonny Giandani, the infamous MPLS. And they are backed by John Chambers. And like that was the big news last week was that John Chambers is on stage at Aruba Atmosphere. You know, Mr. Cisco. Um, I will tell you that your report is absolutely correct that this spin out model that they had for a number of years, whether it was Insiami, Andiamo, Nuova, it ruffled a lot of feathers, but it always produced, whether it was ACI, 
or the uh, you know the UCS director or or even the MDS switch, which honestly, of all of the things they made, that was probably the biggest miss. But I think it was early. And I did have the opportunity to talk to Prem Jane a couple of years ago at RSA right before the pandemic kicked in. And we were talking about their use of P4 and these programming things. And at the time, NetApp was their biggest customer. Um, they've since included, uh, if you look at the announcements that they had, there are two NCME uh, uh, boxes inside of some of uh, Aruba's core switches. You're probably thinking to yourself, well, what's the big deal? Um, the thing is, when you look at the way that companies are starting to approach the market, um, and we've talked about DPUs ad nauseum on here because it's becoming a growing technology uh, strength. And you mentioned it. SmartNIC technology has been around for a while. And I think that what they're aiming for is they're aiming for a tiering, if you will. So at the, at the bottom tier, you've got FPGAs, which are in ASICs, which are stupidly fast and very purpose-built. Then above that, you've got SmartNICs, which are very focused on you know network IO. DPUs are like this hybrid of not just smart NIC, but also of uh, storage IO offload. And so then above that, you've got CPUs. And what you're doing is you're allowing the customer to kind of almost mix and match the way that they want to build a system. Do you have things that require a bunch of high intensity processing tasks? Do you want more CPUs? If your system is very focused on IO, you're going to want more DPUs. And it allows you to kind of build this, for lack of a better term, composable infrastructure. If I have a DPU farm over here, I can bring those resources online as I need them. Also really handy for cloud instances, because now I can offer all of that available for sale as I need it, or I can offer enhanced acceleration features for a small monthly fee. And so you're going to, you know, there's a little bit of value add there. But more importantly, you think to yourself, $2 billion, oh my God, that's nuts. NCME sold to Cisco for just shy of a billion and that was a spin out agreement like you knew they were getting it at a discount so there's value here to amd even aside from the dpu stuff look at where this positions amd their other big acquisition recently was xilinx which is an fpga maker and that's what they're most well known for but they also offer other chipset stuff so nvidia bought melanox and got bluefield and so now they are the big dog in the DPU market. Intel is trying to come up with their own solution, and they are coming along. I will put it that way. AMD had nothing. I mean, they had rumblings, and there was some talk with Xilinx that they have their own DPU solution. But do you want to go with the Xilinx's DPU solution, or do you want to go with the rock stars who have traction? Like, the thing is, NetApp and Aruba were using them. Like, this wasn't just a... A handshake deal of, hey, we'll sell a few of these. And it's funny to see the reaction from the tech space and then the reaction from the financial space, because the financial space is super hot on this because it gives AMD more tools to compete against their competitors. Because it used to be, you know, depending on how far back you go, Chris and I, you, we not, you and I both go all the way back to the days of, you know, like the Cyrix chips and AMD being the only credible competitor to Intel in the desktop PC market. And then AMD fell off the face of the planet. For a long time. And then they came roaring back with, you know, help from the GPU market and other things. And then Intel got lazy and kind of, you know, rested on their laurels for a little bit. And now they find themselves in a fight. And then NVIDIA shows up going, why do you need a CPU? We'll just run ARM and run everything else on daughter cards. Like, you know, DPUs and GPUs and all the other PUs. PU, that's a lot of stuff. But the important thing is now you've got a three-way dance, right? 
So you've got one company who specializes heavily in the, the, the heavy load lifting CPUs, Intel. You've got one company who's really, really good at GPUs, NVIDIA. And then you've got AMD who kind of plays in both areas, but with the Xilinx pickup and with the Pensando pickup, I honestly think that they're going to be aiming to dominate the, the DPU market. So then the question becomes, can each of those companies diversify around the other pieces to create a holistic strategy to prevent a best of breed situation where I have an x86 CPU with an NVIDIA graphics card and a Pensando AMD DPU? Because while that is a dream for me, it's a nightmare for the people who are wanting to capitalize on all the money that they've been spending on these acquisitions. All right. Well, that will just about do it for this episode of the Gestalt IT Rundown. We thank you for tuning in. We are here every Wednesday at 1230 Eastern Time with uh, analysis of the news and all the cool things that are going on. Uh, Chris, what are some things that you've got that you're working on that people should check out? Yeah. So uh, as always, got some great reports on networking, edge, security and risk coming out through GigaOM. So take a look at that if you're a subscriber there. Uh, and everything else you can find um, on my website, chrisgrundeman.com, or let's jump on a conversation on Twitter at Chris Grundeman. And he was a recent guest at our security field day uh, a couple weeks ago. We've got videos being posted from that. Of course, this week is Tech Field Day 25. As a matter of fact, as you're watching this, we are probably broadcasting live over at techfieldday.com, so you're not going to want to miss that. Um, we have some other exciting events coming up. You're definitely going to want to check the calendar over at techfieldday.com, and make sure you sign up for the mailing list that's up there on the top. That way you can get notified when we have something cool coming your way. I'll be at Networking Field Day at the beginning of May, um, but we also have some more stuff coming down the pipe, so you, def you want to make sure you pay attention to that. And because it's also National Caramel Popcorn Day, why don't you go ahead and have yourself a sweet little savory treat, uh, maybe for dessert after lunch, or you can save it for a mid-afternoon snack. Um, we will be back next week with more great news stories. And if you have a news story that you'd like us to cover here on the rundown, please make sure that you tweet at GestaltIT, use the hashtag rundown. Uh, we'll notice that and we'll put it into the show notes and I'll come up with a quippy headline for everybody. And uh, hopefully we'll get you featured. But until next Wednesday, for myself, Tom Hollingsworth, for my amazing co-host, Chris Grundeman, and for the rest of the Gestalt IT family, thanks for tuning in. Have a great week and we will see you soon. <laughs> <laughs>